Welcome to episode 21 of Through the Noise with me, Alex Banks. And today I'm excited to welcome Tim Suchanek. Tim is the co-founder and CTO of Stellate. Stellate's vision is to unlock the world's data by removing the inefficiencies of connecting poorly structured and documented APIs. To date, they've raised 30 million across a 5 million seed round led by Bold Start Ventures and a 25 million Series A led by Tiger Global. Before Stellate, Tim was technical lead at Prisma. Tim also holds a bachelor's degree in computer science. Well, Tim, without further ado, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alex. Why don't we start by explaining to my audience and some non-native developers exactly what Stellate does? Absolutely. So um, I hope my audio is good because uh, the internet was just uh, a bit stuck. But um, so what what is Stellate about? Um, Stellate, we started um, actually uh, earlier last year to focus on GraphQL edge caching. So let's let's have a quick look at what GraphQL is before we uh, understand this. So GraphQL is an API protocol. It has been invented at, at Facebook uh, and then released in 2.15. Uh, it's basically a way for a browser or an application to tell the server what data it wants. So it can say, I want uh, the user with a certain ID and, and the email address, and then that it gets exactly that data. And why is that useful? Why has that been invented? Um, the, the previous protocol that has been used uh, and is still widely used is called REST. And there you usually don't have the possibility to easily say what data you want. You just get it all and then you might get too much and then you have a so-called overfetching. So GraphQL is a new protocol and also um, has a sort of like a type system and you can um, define your schema and can say, I have a user, users related to a post and so on. And so GraphQL is beautiful. I've been using it for many years. And uh, recently, or actually two years ago, when I was getting more back into it for a side project, I realized that there's still a lot of tooling that is not um, basically not yet uh, very strong. There's a lot of tooling missing. And one particular use case I saw was caching. So the idea of caching really is that if you have um, someone requesting data from, let's say, Malaysia, but the server is in Ashburn, then there's latency inevitably. We are limited to the speed of light. And so what about if that person in Malaysia is asking for the same data over and over or other people also from that area, how about we just save that data because we already know the answer. And that's the idea of edge caching. So you basically cache data next to the user. So that's what we started with. And with GraphQL, you have a lot of interesting um, properties that GraphQL brings with this specification that makes this edge caching more feasible because it's really hard. Uh, caching is one of the hardest problems in computer science. And so we operated this for over a year. And then we realized that um, there's so much more to this and so to do GraphQL and the, the tooling. And we are not just doing the edge caching anymore, but we are also going to launch a GraphQL metrics product and uh, going into GraphQL security. So that's what we're extending. But uh, before I dive too much into that, I guess uh, we can loop it back. So that is basically what Stellate, Stellate does today. 
Amazing. Thank you for that. A very clear explanation, Tim. Um, And I'm also fascinated to know how you first made your way into the world of startups. Absolutely. So, uh, oh, that started a while ago. Uh, If you, if I think back, like I think I was 18 or not even 18, I wanted to do the first startup. Back then, uh, we had some crazy idea where we wanted to sell you, you know, you, you might know these babushka puppets or matushka. They have different names. You know, yes, these puppets yes. that are like um, basically nested inside. And one idea we had, I think it was like, yeah, so I'm, I'm 30 now. So it was like 12 years ago or longer. Uh, we wanted to um, make them in a branded way for each city and then have it like as merchandise for, for cities. Uh, for tourists so though it started with those uh weird ideas and then ordering it from alibaba um obviously there are many areas where you can apply the uh the skills of of a programmer computer science um the irony is later i realized that um in dev tooling you have a lot of advantages from a business perspective towards a general um at least b2c businesses um i was doing an app in 2016 it was an ai painting app um not as crazy as what openai has today but the idea was that you could make a selfie and then you would be painted in the style of van gogh for example and um that that is a b2c app so that means uh, it's on app store many people can download it and it would rather work with advertisement or you really need a big mass of people using it and what I can say is that B2C is really cruel. I mean, either you completely win the market or not. And so there was another product launching this. Um, and it turned out they were just a few weeks before us, went through all the media, and they had like 100 million downloads in a few weeks, fastest scoring app ever. Well, we had like, I don't know, 100,000 downloads. But in that market, 100,000 downloads is not enough. So decided to stop working on it. And then went back to, okay, wait a minute, dev tooling is actually pretty awesome to work on because I understand what I'm working on and there's a real market and you don't need to convince the world of it. If you convince a few big companies, you can already have a great business. And so that's like this transition that I had from coming from general startup ideas to uh, moving towards dev tooling. No, super interesting. And I'm, and I'm quite upset that your Russian doll company didn't uh, didn't take off to become the unicorn that it should have been, Tim. <laughs> but no, um, I guess um, with a little bit more a little bit more seriousness. No, it, it sounds like you got involved there from a very young age, which is you know tremendous to see. Um, you also mentioned that with B two C, look, you're either completely winning or not. It's quite a quite a binary outcome, one or one or zero. How do you contrast this to the likes of dev tooling and B2B with regards to at least being able to penetrate that market? Yeah, so I think that um, this uh, the winner takes it all phenomenon is probably also the case for B2B. Um, I mean, you see these giants like Mongo these days, which is one of the most successful uh, dev tooling companies. Um, but to be fair, the database market is also over 130 billion annually. And I think that, um, from a market, um, penetration perspective and like how to get your share of the market, 
what is quite interesting is that you can start with a very niche entry to the market that can be very small. I mean, we saw that the same principle applying to Amazon and many other companies that started small and from there expand, right? So if you look at Datadog these days, they kind of offer everything in terms of uh, observability and metrics. And now there are small startups saying, hey, there's a small part of the pie that we're taking and we're optimizing it. We are making it the best thing ever. And if I really care about this use case, I would even use uh, something else than Datadog, right? There, there's like the gravity of data playing a role that is really beneficial for Datadog because usually companies want all the data in one place. But I think that if you really solve a, a need and uh, focus on one small problem, then even though there's already a big market and there are these big players, AWS, etc., you can already get a nice entry into the market and expand from there. And that's also, by the way, the same idea from the um, Crossing the Chasm book. They even use a bit more war um, rhetorics. They say that you uh, basically want to capture a beachhead first and then from there you want to expand. And yeah, I think that works well B2B. Not that sure. I mean, you could say in B2C it's similar, but it seems to be in B2B, if you really solve a problem, companies are willing to pay money. Um, whereas in B2C, uh, customers are used to having a lot of free stuff. I really like that reference there, Capture the Beachhead. Um, and I think, you know, it, it rings true to a lot of, um, also a lot of what was said in, in Zero to One as well, you know, with, with the likes of monopolizing with, uh, with a small part of that market, you know, ultimately with what Amazon did with books and then scaling as that, as that market grows. Um, super, super interesting. Absolutely. Um, yeah. you, you mentioned two things earlier, you know, you, you said, look, there's a lot of tooling missing here, at least with, with what, um, Stella is, is dealing with. Um, how have you, well, first off, you know, explain to me what is GraphQL and explain to me like how this gap is now being closed. Yeah, so uh, GraphQL is an interesting technology. I, I mentioned it a bit earlier, what the idea is, but I can I can dive into that a bit more. So um, when we uh, have a browser and a server, so the, the interesting thing is if we if we maybe just look at how how Facebook is built. So uh, Facebook were basically when the iOS SDK came out the first day. The Facebook people already looked into it and wanted to build the app. Um, Lee Byron, the creator of GraphQL, is also one of our advisors. He's sometimes talking about the stories there. The day the, the SDK came out, they immediately tried to hire the Apple people, actually, who knew the SDK. And so with that, they were the first company, or one of the first of this like cohort, if you want, that were facing the problem that they were building a mobile app and they needed to get data into it and they needed to get data out of it. And so um, what they said is that let's focus on just one view, which is the uh, the feed the, where you see like the live feed, the, the, all the updates um, from your network. And that thing actually has a, a lot of data requirements. And so um, they were looking into it like the pretty much the best engineers out there. How can we provide the data for this view? And uh, the iOS developers they want to have some way of specifying, hey, for this view, I need that data. It, it is something that the backend developer can't know. The backend developer can't know, okay, I, they know about databases, they know about 
performance around scaling a system, they can't possibly know whatever the product team came up with. So there needs to be a separation, but still there needs to be communication between them. Like the the, um, the app developer still needs to be able to tell the backend, this is what I need. And this is a tension that you will never get rid of. Um, and the, But GraphQL now takes a different spin on this tension. And it says, instead of kind of the backend developer throwing the solution over the fence, here it is, there is more uh, an integration happening automatically through GraphQL because you give um, the GraphQL is way more powerful than traditional APIs. You can write queries that go deep into different relations. You can say, give me the user and for the user, the post and the comments. And so this is a new situation that um, brings a lot of new challenges. So one is suddenly people have to collaborate in a different way and it's a good thing. Uh, it's interesting because some people say this is a problem of GraphQL. Uh, suddenly, uh, well, there's so much coordination needed. But the truth is, I think it's a good thing. And it also comes back to uh, uh, Conway's law, where usually teams are structured similarly to the product and the, the technology they, they build and they use. And so with GraphQL, I see it um, a lot as a collaboration tool, because now you have a common language that both the backend and the frontend people speak. And you can say as a front-end person, hey, I have this need. I need to build this view. And you talk to the back-end team and they say, okay, look, that's how we can design the schema. That's uh, Look, that's that's how we can build this. Is that solving your need? Yes. Okay. And then they can work together. So that's like that's where GraphQL comes in, especially in teams. Uh, I would say GraphQL currently is less shining on the use case for if you're just alone, just building a, a small web app. Less uh, um, an advantage, still awesome, and you have the type safety and so on. But there can be, for that case, simpler approaches. But the problems that GraphQL uh, is solving is usually on a bigger scale. Once I have to work with a team, um, as soon as there are more than a few people involved, it's really valuable to have it as a like as a contract. Basically, you say, look, that's the that's the schema, that's the contract I give you to the front end. So now. That we, we just talk about a technical solution here. That already means there's tons of um, problems now on the on the human side that has has nothing to do with the tech that need to be solved. So that's like a huge area. Um, and um, especially when you talk about microservices, how can they now work together to give you a nice GraphQL API? And there are companies like Apollo in that field and they build products around that so that you can collaborate with your team on on the on the APIs there. And so what we are focusing on is rather we are looking at GraphQL and we say, hey, it's a specification. The whole ecosystem agrees on it, and that's the power of GraphQL. And just a, a small anecdote, the Netflix team had something basically the same as GraphQL, and they called it Falcor. And um, they looked at GraphQL and saw wait a minute, it's nearly the same and their community community is taking off. All the companies in Silicon Valley are using it. Let's switch. So the humble Netflix team said, although they had a pretty awesome design there with Falcor technical design, they switched to GraphQL just for the sake of the community. So that's the, that's the strength that everyone is agreeing on a certain standard. And that's like, still happening we have a working group in graphql that is still pushing the language forward and so the areas that we see in graphql is that 
what has been focused a lot uh, on in the, in the last years is building a GraphQL API. So a lot of tooling around that. And the irony is even I was in one of the first startups um, after um, I joined, uh, after I left the, the AI painting app, I joined GraphQL, now known as Prisma, was the first backend as a service for GraphQL. So it was around the building part. I say I have an app, I, I have a certain, I want to build a to-do app, for example. And now I want a certain uh, schema and data model for that. So that's a use case that was solved there. So that's already a use case that has been uh, focused on by the community over the last years, just getting a GraphQL API off the ground. Now, there are a bunch of um, problems that are not really new to APIs, but uh, they're still new to GraphQL, pretty new um, around productionizing an API. So, for example, rate limiting. Uh, rate limiting is something we're building a solution around right now. So if you have an ordinary uh, REST API, then each REST uh, request is roughly like the same, has roughly the same complexity. Um, with GraphQL, you can write a really deep query that like um, is an equivalent to maybe even hundreds or thousands of REST calls. And so now if I want to rate limit, meaning uh, I'm just allowing a user to do one request or 10 requests per second, I need to have a different metric for that. I need to account for this complexity that uh, that a GraphQL query brings. And so the current solutions are not really uh, taking that into account. And other things like being able to automatically generate documentation out of GraphQL, that's one of the biggest strengths of it. As it is a type system, it's like a clearly defined system you can automatically uh, generate a lot of awesome stuff out of it. And um, for example, generating uh, documentation, but there's still a lot more work to do. So what we see is that when you're like building a GraphQL API, there are good solutions, they're evolving. Operating a GraphQL API in production still has a lot of potential and the old solutions that we had from the rest world uh, don't cut it. Yeah, super interesting. <clears throat> and you know, at least your point there, Tim, on everyone agreeing on a certain standard, there has to be that consensus, that community, and that network effect for it to ultimately work. Um, and I guess you know, like, look, taking a bit of a, a bit of a step back to Stellates, I know you were previously called Graph CDN. Why the name change, and where does the idea for the name Stellate come from? Yeah, that's uh, that's an excellent question. So um, back in the days when we started with, with what was known as GraphCDN, we basically said that we, we gave it a what name, what it is, almost as if you would call uh, Google the fast search engine, which in that case was good for marketing because the name already said what it was. There was not too much to uh, describe. Um, it didn't perfectly fit. Because a CDN content delivery network usually uh, focuses on static content. So um, the first CDN ever was Akamai. They started uh, with JPEGs in the 90s and then from there developed that anything could be distributed, including movies. Um, by the way, Netflix has the biggest CDN out there. And uh, also, a little anecdote they have uh, free servers and all the different. Uh, carriers they they just like all the tele telecommunication providers they have uh, servers there for free 
Why? Because it saves them uh, storage, uh, saves them bandwidth. Uh, so yeah, there are these huge CDNs rather focused on static content. And um, we, um, however, it still made sense because for us to take that name because we're talking about a globally distributed network with um, dozens of locations. So there the name made a lot of sense when we talk about caching. However, um, a bunch of these problems, if you look into the problem space, don't necessarily need to be related to the edge or the CDN. Um, the edge, by the way, is just a term of saying there are many definitions, but having um, data centers next to the user. That can be 50 data centers around the planet, 200, whatever. And uh, so that's like graph CDN is basically saying we do GraphQL at the edge. That, that's like the, the problem space, the domain there. But we realized that there are a lot of problems in GraphQL that have nothing to do with Edge, but they're still super valuable for us to solve. And they also have nothing to, to do with the caching. Um, and so it was clear for us, we kind of needed a bigger boat to fit the new vision. And what is the new vision? How, what, what is that about? So um, we uh, did a bunch of research and uh, saw what, what our users asking for, including rate limiting. And so the rate limiting, uh, I, I asked the users, why do you want rate limiting? Rate limiting is a solution, but what is the actual problem that you want to solve? Um, and a bunch of them told us, well, yeah, I want others, other people um, like third-party developers or partners being able to access my API. Oh, interesting. So that's a whole different problem. And it turns out it's a much bigger problem space than just rate limiting. Um, than what rate limiting covers. So we realized there is more to it and helping companies to expose their GraphQL APIs is a beautiful problem space for us to work on. And that needs a lot of solutions, not just uh, the rate limiting, but for example, helping them with documentation so that other developers know how to use it. And documentation already has nothing to do with the CDN anymore. Um, at the same time, we were already looking for a new name. That happened in parallel. So actually the new name search started i would say nearly when we just launched we were already we knew i think the the, the first offsite we had in september last year we said mm, yes the name has to change we just didn't know when and to what and so for the name actually uh, we did uh, we had a very systematic approach and worked with an agency on it and so the agency is called the 100 monkeys highly recommended they came up with names like waymo or octa so they did a really good job there. And so they have a very interesting approach of working. They usually take names that are rather unique uh, over and, and have like a great idea behind it over having the .com, for example. So we don't have the .com for Stellate. And so we, we worked for, with them, told them our, our needs, what's our, our taste here. And so the process really works like this. You choose a few like a small group from the company where just three people, because if you have too many people, everyone has different taste. And with them, you basically say, uh, these are the name, these are the names we like. And so uh, like we had a bunch of uh, iterations with them. They, they, there were a few other really awesome names, but after all, we decided for Stellate because it's a name that doesn't have any strong connotation yet. Uh, we said that if we are moving away from something like Graph CDN, 
which has a very strong connotation with it. People have associations with it. And sometimes you need to work against those associations because with a CDN, they think, ah, that's the static stuff. And we say, no, it's not static, it's dynamic. And so you need to work a lot against your own naming, basically. And we intentionally wanted something that doesn't have any uh, connotation. There are no graph in it, nothing. And so that's why we went for stellate. And they found this beautiful word, stellate actually means star-shaped. And uh, with having like this global data network, that's just a beautiful metaphor. And we thought that that is a perfect fit. Beautiful name. Um, And what a fantastic origin, at least. Um, And at least talking about that global data network, I know the International Data Corporation said that, look, in five years time, you'll have two and a half times more data than you will do today. How on earth is this going to get managed, Tim? And at least how is Stellate capturing this trend? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, their GraphQL comes in again. So it's interesting because we all probably have heard of the old Web3, which was like in 10 years ago, Web3 was uh, the semantic web that uh, the W3C wanted to work on. Tim Berners-Lee had that idea. And the idea was that um, we currently have like an internet or like a web that is connecting human data. Like as a human, I click on a link and it's like made for for humans to be readable. But now we're talking about a web underneath that is readable by machines. That was the original idea by uh, of, of the W3C there of the semantic web. Um, however, it didn't really work out because they had problems with incentive and so on. Like people didn't really see why would I contribute to this and the only output from that was a standard called that I would say is now really adopted as JSON LD, and that's it. So the semantic web didn't really succeed, and we know it's a really, really tough problem. Um, and we think that on a technical side of things, uh, a lot happened since then that brings us into a much better position to work on something like that right now. One development is for sure GraphQL. Um, the fact that I can already that I already have a big community that uh, accepts the standard, works for with it, it's growing. And also, uh, there are already first approaches how to connect multiple GraphQL APIs together. Um, they are still evolving. The community is still finding these things out, and there are discussions happening there in working groups. But uh, that is already a much stronger direction than if you try to create it from nothing. So both we will wor- have to work with the community there, but also uh, innovate a lot to even enable this. And so there are a bunch of like puzzle pieces basically that I see that we need to get into the right uh, spot so this even scales. And so that's it's a really tough and interesting technical challenge to, to figure out over the next years. Uh, we already have some interesting approaches there, but now it's, it will be a lot of work for sure to, to, to get it into a good state. Fascinating, Tim, and definitely uh, a lot of work there. But equally, equally, you know, fascinating seeing how how this will all will all turn out. I am curious, though, taking a bit of a step back. How did you first come to meet your co-founder Max? Yeah, that's an excellent question. That's like a really, really uh, interesting topic because we definitely went with the non, like, I mean, Y Combinator in a sense is like for some people like the university for for startups or the way to learn about uh, startups and uh, the famous advisors don't 
found a company for someone whom you don't know yet. Like the the likelihood uh, of of staying together is, is bad. Uh, famous example of the Stripe brothers, they're brothers. And uh, if you just met someone that can go bad. And so, however, if you are in the situation that you currently don't have someone in your network that is a, a strong uh, match, well, you need to go on the search. And so um, Max and I, we met through an introduction of a friend of ours, um, common friend, Andreas Klinger, who used to be the CTO of Product uh, Product Hunt. And so he did the intro and was like, hey, you could be a good match because Max actually needed something like Rastidia and now Stellet back in the days when he was building Spectrum. Um, Max, by the way, my co-founder, he is the creator of Styled Components, which is a library used by, I think, 10% of the web or something. And so he was building a community, kind of a mix between Slack and a forum. It was actually a pretty awesome concept. Um, called Spectrum and was widely used in developer um, communities because you both had the chat, but then also the knowledge was persistent. So it was indexed by Google and you could find uh, your answers. Pretty awesome concept. And they sold it to GitHub though. And um, before they did, they had a lot of scaling problems, uh, a nice problem to have. Um, and uh, they were actually looking into different solutions. There was one solution back in the days called FastQL, um, but the creator of FastQL, he was like, sorry, I won't maintain this anymore. He had different uh, plans uh, in his life. So then uh, Max couldn't use any solution there. His uh, server still didn't scale. The GraphQL didn't scale. He really would have liked a uh, edge caching uh, service there. And so when Andreas told him, hey, Tim now finally built what you uh, what you wanted back in the days, he was like, no way, this is finally here. And uh, that was a really great match for me as well because I knew he understands the problem because he had it himself. So I wouldn't have any doubt that Max, who's, by the way, rather the extrovert, rather the person going out from, from Max and uh, from, from the two of us, he that he could sell this, that he could tell this to the world, hey, that's actually solving a real problem because at least like he and I had the problem I had the problem in, in a side project myself. And so that was like the start. We, we didn't know each other. It was in actually February last year, so not that long ago. And so then Max flew over from Vienna to Berlin. And uh, what we said is, hey, we need some way to yeah, evaluate if we can work together. And so wh how, how can we do that as effective as possible? Like, let's dive in. Let's, you know, uh, directly take away any... Uh, guards or anything let let's dive in and and see who we are and see if it's a match and so we said that uh, the most important thing we need to figure out right now is this even something people need and so what we did we had like 10 20 calls with people from the community uh, who are running graphql in production and it turned out yes there are many people who were interested and uh, we got a um, bunch of signups and so that was a good sign and then what we did which is, it sounds a bit weird, but I can still recommend it to everyone who is looking for a founder. There is um, a New York Times article. It's called like the 36 questions to fall in love. And it's not necessarily uh, like, uh, you know, romantic topics, but it's really personal. So you ask things like how, like things about the childhood that you wouldn't just ask to someone uh, that, that you just met. And so we made sure that we have an as efficient as possible uh, process to meet. Uh, 
joke or the, the, the irony was this was not even needed on the friday evening he arrived saturday afternoon we were sitting there coding uh because we needed to fix something um I think there was a DNS outage or something, so we needed to deploy like an alternative routing strategy and then um, just looking at each other, by the way, we're doing this, right? Yeah, just shaking hands and then continuing coding. So that's the story how we came together. And since then, like we immediately felt an, a deep alignment on values. That was the most important thing. I think that's something to look out for uh, when, when looking for a co-founder deep alignment on values, for sure, we are quite different. And that's important. You want the co-founder to be different because then they bring in an interesting uh, perspective. But as we saw, like the deep trust, the values are aligned, we will figure it out. And that's still the view we have today. Values are aligned, we'll figure everything out. Yeah. Wow, what a tremendous story. A couple of bits I want to pick up there, Tim. At least the first on the alignment of values um i i do agree with you there whilst at the same time that, that they have to come from different perspectives because i have i have quite a quite an old saying that if two people think the same one of them is unnecessary and in the case of startups look you, you absolutely want differing perspectives but in terms of those fundamental principles those fundamental values there absolutely has to be overlap there to, to at least achieve the common goal. Um, and, and at least with the 36 questions that you mentioned there, to fall in love, of course, Tim, um, I need to go and check those out because those look, those look excellent. And, and at least whilst, you know, you, you, you didn't stumble across Max through a, you know, primary connection after being introduced by Andreas um, and at least finding that value alignment, I think, you know, what a... What a great story. So uh, all for that, Tim. Um, and I, I think, you know, look, fr from this and, you know, coming to now co-found Stellates and, and everything in between, where did this passion for tech stem from? At least, you know, going all the way back from starting your first business, uh, trying to sell Russian dolls. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. So, I think actually, if I would go way back, it's from, I come from my father who's an electrical engineer. Uh, and so he always, I, I remember back in 2002, he told me, you know, Tim, there are these phones called UMTS phones. <laughs> and currently they fit only into a car, but one day you will have the small device with a colorful screen and it can communicate with other devices. I was like, sure, that sounds like some science fiction and for sure one day I could watch a movie on it. <laughs> and actually, even if I go back in kindergarten, I wanted to uh, build like, uh, I wanted to be an uh, um, inventor uh, and wanted to build like uh, Perpetuo Mobiles and these kind of things. I thought that if you have a uh, like a ball that inside has solar panels and then you have a little light bulb in in there, then it would just produce energy. Turned out I didn't know the basics of uh, physics. Um, but yeah, so that was always there. Um, there was actually another uh, passion that I was thinking of going for, which was the trumpet. Uh, was playing the trumpet for many years, and so when I was um, when uh, like heading towards college, and now I need to make a decision what I want to do, I was seriously considering it, and luckily. My trumpet teacher, teacher told me, Tim, mm, 
he basically told me that I'm not a very talented trumpet player uh, and I should rather not do that <laughs> not try to make money with it and that was probably one of the best advices I ever got and from that moment I then said okay let's maybe not do too much trumpet here and look into computers I've always been excited about them and then studied uh, computer science and then I would even say that then really it started of understanding these concepts uh, object-oriented programming java learned that in 2011 in, in in university and with that it really started and it's funny because um now you know these platforms like skillshare and so on 2011 i start i, I tried these ideas as well skill like something like skillshare where you can uh, learn skills online udemy tried that in 2011 back then i just didn't have the skill set and so took me, I think, a few more years to really get to the skill set so I could actually build things. And, uh, yeah, on the, on the way, tried a lot of more uh, startup ideas, but that's kind of how, how it started. Yeah. All the way back in kindergarten, you wanted to be an inventor. Why is intellectual curiosity important to you, Tim? Oh, that's interesting. Intellectual curiosity. Hmm. I mean, hmm, it's interesting. It's it is okay. Could could you maybe elaborate a bit more, or like rephrase, or trying to at least with the the ability and the freedom to pursue what you're passionate about, and never giving that up, never handing that over. Um, you know, from from a child being incredibly playful, always wanting to explore the next exciting thing, at least retaining that thought process as you develop to adulthood. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that, uh, yeah, so especially in tech and in, in web development, whoever is listening who is in, uh, in, in software development, uh, you will know that there's always a shiny new thing uh, the next day. If you look on Hacker News, there's a new project launched and so on. And there's always new tech and, and it's all moving forward. And in a sense, we need to have the ability to say, okay, that's, that's nice. It's shiny. It's cool, but let's focus. Let's see what we're working on and focus on it. On the other hand, there might be the game changer. You, you never know. There might be the project that just was launched and that might actually make your old skills obsolete. And I think um, it's the best defense to become obsolete of being curious and uh, the people whom I see in, in, de in developer tooling who are at the top of their game, those are the curious people. They are asking interesting, why, why do you see it like that? And that's just, um, I think you can't be in the mindset of I know it and I'm curious at the same time. Because if I say I know it, I mean, what, I, what are you telling me here? You won't listen. You won't be super open because you already have the assumption you're open. You, you know it. You won't even ask the questions. But being curious about these things always, and if there's like someone uh, feeling different about it, and I'm like, they need to see something that I don't see. So I want to find out what, what what is it? Can I learn something? Maybe they have a different perspective. And I think that's always that's kind of a necessity really to succeed. Uh, at least in this field, I'm sure this applies to other fields as well. If you stop being curious and you just say, thanks, we're settled. If you have a company and you have that, your company will die at some point because the world moves on. And I think it's a really crucial skill 
um, especially as a startup founder, to have this curiosity. And again, the, the ability to say, good, it's, it's a new shiny thing. And we now continue with our current approach sometimes. That's also important like this, this kind of focus and not uh, like you have the gra grass is greener phenomenon as well. And uh, everything uh, on the other side of the river is always uh, more awesome. Uh, and I think balancing that, that is not always that easy. And I remember actually back in the days, 2011, when I wanted to build my first web app, I think I was researching which Java with uh, which uh, CSS framework I should use for three days. So I was sitting there for three days nonstop comparing SaaS and LESS and all these different frameworks. And you also can have this, um, like that you're stuck and paralyzed by, by all the different options and, oh, there's more and there's more. Um, with the years that improved and I can fairly quickly assess if a project makes sense for me or not. But that also was an important skill uh, to to develop. Um, Richard Feynman, he has a, a great quote saying that the ultimate purpose of education is to change an empty mind into an open one. And I think at least with the examples you gave there, Tim, relating to software, look, you've you've got to be curious to appreciate the new technologies and perhaps make your process a lot more efficient and make the world a lot more efficient. But at, but at the same time, if everyone kept chasing that next shiny thing, then nothing would actually get done. There would be no work done. There would be no focus inside of the elements that need focus. So it's, it's, it's a fascinating dichotomy um, that, that absolutely has to be, has to be balanced there. Um, I know just yesterday it was announced that you acquired FastQL I'm interested to sort of, you know, push this push this conversation on a little more and go, look, how are you approaching acquisitions now as you scale upon this recent announcement? Um, yeah, so just a quick note. It was not yesterday. It was a while ago. Maybe there was uh, our blog post was not updated there. Uh, but I can still give some background to that. So when we came into the market, we had a look at um, what's going on and who's there already. And if you Google GraphQL CDN, then it was clear um, FastQL was the number one result. And um, so in, in this game, where like an infrastructure company, we need to um, be credible. It's, yeah, it's super important that people trust you. Um, there was actually a phenomenon that Stripe had, which was that only companies of the same size that Stripe was at in that moment would even use Stripe because they wouldn't trust them uh, otherwise. And so that's still the game that we're in. Uh, we need to be uh, have high credibility, high uh, availability, etc. And so um, one way to you can even accelerate that if if that opportunity shows itself uh, to yeah to basically acquire a company that is already in the space. And so FastQL, uh, founded by Zach, a fantastic guy in, in Austin, met him recently. Uh, he uh, had the similar, like similar thoughts, similar observations as we had of saying there needs to be a better solution. And so in this case, um, it was a fairly low-key acquisition, to be fair, because uh, Zach was the only person working on it no employees so it was from a legal perspective fairly low overhead 
Um, and what it was more about is like, actually you take over customers and those customers uh, need service. They need um, to be migrated, etc. So it was more about that and really for us, a great credibility boost, just uh, fairly in the beginning, already having this uh, acquisition that was really great for us. So it was more about the credibility about the, um, also the, the learnings from Zach, we worked quite a bit with him and, uh, exchanged all the learnings we had and learnings he had uh, from which we are now also drawing our product learnings and, and building a better product. I really, really like that. And, you know, I, I'm also you know interested off the back of this, or at least closing this recent, recent fundraise, how, how are you scaling out product development now after that recent Series A raised him? That's a, a excellent question. Um, for scaling the company, that's that's now where uh, yeah the rubber meets the meets the road. Um, we have started as any startup just with the founders in the beginning a year ago. If we just zoom like go back a bit, Max and I were sitting in an Airbnb in Vienna and both coding <laughs> nonstop for a couple of weeks until we said now it's ready to be released. Um, and that obviously changed. Um, I actually for the first year was a CEO. And um, I asked a simple question a few weeks ago. Hey, I think we need a bit more uh, product and technical leadership here. What can we do about it? And within two minutes, actually, we made a decision that, uh, and it came really from me, Max should be CEO and I should be CTO. And so that was a big shift. And it was a big shift that uh, had has a lot to do with also how we do product now. Um, obviously in a, in an optimal world, like the setup that I see for like a great product team and with product team, I mean a team that is cross-functional that has all the roles uh, represented. You want to have uh, one product manager, want to have an engineering manager that is focusing on the management side of engineering leadership, not the technical side. Probably want to still have at least someone who's like a tech lead or a bit more senior who can like whom you can have deeper technical conversations with, um, and then um, product designer and a few engineers. From the engineering side, four to eight engineers. That's like what uh, literature is suggesting and what what so far looks like it works out. So that's like the product uh, team there. And the irony is that this also doesn't have to be like that. You can have functional teams as well, um, Vercel, actually, that company is um, more like a mix. They don't just have the cross-functional teams. They have teams where, like, business goals or, re or responsibilities fall. But uh, for us, it's currently we're still one product team. And uh, later this year, we will have the uh, split. Um, we, in three months, will have, like, 12 engineers. Um, and so... 12 engineers in one team is probably a bit too much. And at that point, you want to do the split. Um, but when it comes to product, product development, what I really try is as much as possible giving people agency, giving people autonomy. So instead of me giving them the piecemeal uh, tasks, what to do, it's more like we hire engineers who understand the topic, who know GraphQL. So when it comes down to more fine-grained decisions, they can make them. I trust them because they will understand the customer. And that takes a lot of load off me 
uh, in my role as CTO, but also currently product manager until we have the first product manager hired because they can, they understand the product, they understand the, the domain and they can make these decisions. So that in that sense, that is growing and, and scaling well so far, but let's see uh, how that will look like for the first split. And for this first split, when we go into multiple teams, I can also tell you our current approach is quite simple. We say we will intentionally keep these teams too big for a while um, with over 10, 12, 15 engineers and then see where do responsibilities naturally fall and then from there do the uh, split and have different teams, probably again with uh, all the different people like a product designer, manager and so on. Um, instead of doing that upfront because upfront it's hard to to know where where things are falling yeah absolutely tim and i think look as we move to sort of the the latter stages of this pod i'm really interested to know look what's the greatest lesson you've learned from building stellate so far Ooh, that's a great question what's the greatest lesson um i would say it's all about the people it always comes back to that because you can focus a lot on your what's your strategy and what is this and that. But after all, you need to really ask yourself, what is what is someone strong at? And usually people are strong at what they like to do. It's not always the case, but usually they're strong at what they like to do. So if I ask my engineers, what do you like to do? I'm always, I'm basically asking them, what do they, what are they strong at? And basically give them those tasks and make sure they can work on those things. That is, I think, Basically, instead of like everyone focuses on business strategy, but I would say people strategy might even be more important. Um, and that was the case for Max and me as well. We realized, hey, wait a minute. Um, I was CEO for a year. He he was still doing a lot of go-to-market, and then he didn't really have a defined title in that time. Chief revenue officer didn't really make sense. And then the switch, me going to CTO, he to CEO, suddenly we can unlock empower and uh, um, enable people to do their best work. And I think that was really a big learning for me that we need to look at the people and see what are they good at. And, and I think when you see that and, and can utilize that well, that's, that's just beautiful, just beautiful for the people involved. They can flourish and grow uh, and also makes total sense uh, from a business perspective. It's like smooth jazz, Tim, when individuals are doing what they want to do, ultimately incentivized, and, you know, everyone has the autonomy to go and do what they're best at. Absolutely. To wrap things up on this main body of the, of the podcast, tell me, Tim, what does your perfect day look like? Mm, well, interesting. So I think for me, it's a mix of deep work and focus work. Um, but let's start in the morning. So um, I think it's really important, especially as a startup founder, to take care of yourself. If you don't do that long term, that doesn't that doesn't work out. And these images that we sometimes see, whatever, working 16 hours a day, seven days a week, that just doesn't work for most humans and doesn't make sense. Um, I think in order to do our best, we really need to listen to our body, do the best uh do whatever is needed to to be able to do the best work and so what i do in the morning is usually a workout uh, 30 minutes 
then uh, it, I will say the optimal day, and I'm not always doing all of those. Uh, sometimes just one of them. Uh, workout, then uh, Wim Hof breathing, cold shower, um, and then um, don't eat usually, just have coffee, make a coffee with my V60 uh, coffee maker, and then uh, optimally, again, not always doing it, uh, meditation, 10 minutes, journaling quickly my thoughts that I have. There will be a bunch of thoughts, and then opening up uh, Slack and so on. A um, bunch of stuff coming there. Currently, I'm in um, European time zone, so that means uh, folks from the US, there will be a lot of messages. Um, however, it's really not urgent to look into those messages because those people are sleeping. So it's more important to then get to work, have uh, a few hours of deep focus work, um, whatever it is, writing a blog post or writing a new specification. And then in the afternoon, it's more about meetings usually, um, one-on-ones or uh, company-wide meetings. Um, and that's pretty much it. So that's an optimal day. If I just have already two, three hours of focus time, that's that's beautiful because then that's how I can put my genius to work. It's not that meetings are not productive and you, I think a valid way to see meetings is it's basically work, doing work while you're all just in a call doesn't have to be that it's inefficient, but I really like my uh, deep focus time. Yeah. I really like that structure, Tim, and I like how you start it internally focusing on yourself, your health, your well-being, and then ultimately opening up and, and, and seizing the day for, for what it has to offer. Uh, I'm, I'm a very big believer in working like a lion, you know, sprinting, resting, then reassessing, you know, building a marathon of sprints. And I, I, I find that to be the most effective, uh, at, at least from how I operate. Yeah, absolutely. Same, same for me. I mean, uh, at least in my job, it's a very, it's a mental job. I need to, uh, my, I need my brain. And I think that actually Jeff Bezos in that sense is a bit more healthy uh, example of someone who is uh, actually saying, I, I take my eight hours uh, a night because I, my, basically I'm paid for making good decisions and I can make better decisions if I slept well. So I think, yeah, taking care of these basics just makes total sense. Fantastic. And I do have a tradition on this podcast where at the end of the show, each guest answers a question that was left by the previous guest. Now, last episode, we had Evgenia Plotnikova, general partner at Dawn Capital over here in London. And their question to you, Tim, is what is the most non-obvious decision you made that turned out to be hugely positive in the long run? Interesting. Hmm. Okay, I have to quickly ponder about it. Let's think about it. Um, okay, I have one. Um, so, the eyes belong to the brain tissue, actually. <laughs> now you're wondering, where is he getting? So, the eyes belong to the brain tissue, and what I want to get to is that our mental focus actually has a lot to do with how we focus with our eyes. And so I was um, having a really huge screen, like a very wide screen, and I noticed it's hard for me to focus. Uh, and that's really just because my eyes couldn't focus. And I got rid of that screen and got a smaller screen. And to be honest, I'm way more happy and I can focus better. So that this, this change that I first, it just felt weird. So I got a different screen, but I didn't know what it was. 
And now I realize that I can actually focus better mentally with a smaller screen. Yeah. That's a brilliant answer. Um, something definitely not obvious. And yeah, I, I think I've, I've definitely taken that, that on board as well. I used to have a, uh, I think I used to have three screens and now having just one, having that central focal point, focusing on one thing at a time, getting it done meticulously, Tim, I'm absolutely behind that. It, it, it has made the world of difference. Yeah, absolutely. That makes total sense. Yeah. Well, Tim, we, we have come to the end now, but I've so enjoyed this podcast. My favorite episodes are when we don't use half of the question list and we've done exactly that today. We've got a little bit off piece, but, uh, so enjoyed having you along. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. It's a, it's a huge pleasure and, uh, really liked the, the podcast so far and you're doing good work. Thank you.